welcome to the bandwidth your first stop uh, your first stop for collectible finance here at the ban arbitrage network we combine data and experience to help you understand the world of collectible finance i think as you could tell by that rollout i am not father ken but i'm doing my best attempt at his uh, at mimicking him uh, i think today we have on uh tp blaster i think we're going to talk about that uh collection that you most recently bought and uh, a couple of other things uh how are you doing today I'm doing good. Uh, just harkening back to the intro, I think I'm definitely going to be bringing the experience side tonight. I think <laughs> that it's been uh, pretty interesting following the market over the last couple of months and just sort of trying to understand where we're at right now um, with, you know, I, I'm focused on a lot of high end and reserve lists, but kind of seeing where the market is at as, as a whole, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, if you're still interested in collections, the sky isn't falling, right? I mean, you're still relatively bullish or at least uh, believing that the market will hold steady and, and increase from here? Um, I'm less speculative in nature. So I generally, there was a couple times where I was sort of specking on stuff going up. Like I, it was pretty clear in early 2021 that you should be buying revised duels and holding them for a month or two. And that turned out to be like <laughs> even more true than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Um, but, but generally I'm looking at more acquiring large amounts of inventory at like solid prices. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm not necessarily aiming for my stuff to, you know, go up 10 to 20%. I'm trying to pick up stuff where I can have at least a 15 to 20% margin at the current sales data. So I'm mainly looking at collections or other sort of opportunities where other sellers are, are, are selling stuff for too cheap, or if I can, you know, take a card from a different market and then sort of move it from one spot to the other. That's generally what I'm looking at. That's my business model sort of lately uh, for yeah, no, 2021. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. I will just point out, I think I've, I've said this on a number of, of things that I've been on that my experience when it comes to collections is uh, probably the smallest you're going to find in this space. Uh, so if I ask anything elementary, uh, oh, yeah. pardon me, uh, I've only ever bought one. So, and I was not competent about it. <laughs> yeah, I think buying collections is, is really hard. Um, there's a lot of competition within the space, depending on sort of where you are looking at. And also really depending on your scale, you know, as you dollar value up, there's less competition, but your competition sort of changes. So like on a $100,000 collection, you're competing with maybe 10 or 20 people in the US as opposed to, you know, a thousand thousand people on Facebook, but your competition, mm -hmm. you know, changes from a bunch of smaller dealers to potentially you're competing against Star City, Card Kingdom, maybe TOA Magic, and, and that really shifts the dynamic a lot. And then also when the collections get bigger, a lot of the items get a lot more unique. And that's where it can become really hard to evaluate. And I think that's that's something that you kind of got to lean on people who really know their stuff in that space in order to, to understand that stuff. You can't really lean on sort of TCG player. You kind of got to do a lot more holistic research. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So you mentioned it earlier, and hopefully I think this might uh, lead into the collection itself of those taigas that, that you posted a, a fistful of earlier. Or any yeah, so of. revised duels have kind of been interesting for me. It, it kind of, there's a little bit of story behind them. Over the last couple of years, I, my business model has always uh, leaned on duels in one way or another. Back when I was starting, I did a lot of trade grinding. So I would use duels as sort of a trade bait 
to sort of pick up lots of smaller cards and then move them on direct. And more recently, I've mainly been looking at duels as sort of this big blue chip stock that's you can pay really well on and are pretty liquid. And they've been pretty stable. I mean, you know, I've heard a lot of people talking about how revised prices have been dropping, but when you really look at a lot of the a lot of the data, we've seen some some pullback from the peaks like you know, Volcanic Islands and Underground Seas are under $600 for HP copies now. But we're really seeing, we're still seeing bayous and plateaus and all of these smaller ones that are staying between, you know, 220 and 275 for some of the worst ones, sort of some of them being almost all the way up to 400 for some of your, your better dual lands. And lately, I've just been picking them up aggressively. So the Taigas, for example, I, I picked a lot of those up from Star City Games. They had, you know, a big cheap stack that I was just picking off with credit. And I kind of, I look around a lot for different spots to pick up duels. Like I've picked up duels from CK in the past. I picked mm-hmm. up duels from Card Conduit. There's a lot of different spots to pick up duels if you're if you're really looking around. Because when you think about how these stores price cards and their model is not always <laughs> their model is not always adjusted well for for a lot of these bigger cards because either their near mint price might be too cheap. So their near mints will sell out immediately and their HP prices will sit. So they'll bring down their 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 sort of their base price, which can sometimes make their HP cards too cheap. Or you're able to sort of leverage store credit where, you know, 15% off a $5 card really isn't the same as 15% off a $200 card. So there's, you know, I pick up a lot of duels in collections, but I also pick up a lot of duels off of sort of different random sites. And it's about sort of keeping your eye open and willing to sink a good good chunk of money in when uh, when the getting's good. So, I mean, I bought a ton of Taigas and I think I think Taigas are in a solid spot right now. I'm also willing to accept like slightly lower margins on duels, which allows me to sort of buy them better. You know, it almost sounds like the and, and this is something that I always I would say utilize, perhaps hide behind uh, is liquidity. And it sounds like there's almost an advantage here to what you were just describing. And I don't want to say the lack of liquidity because obviously you're selling them, but the, the e-commerce price points of these sites have so few of their own data points to to price it off of that it allows for this kind of uh jumping between in terms of they might be incorrect today or not etc in terms of what you were saying about well there's also the there's also the rigidity so like for example card kingdom for cards over a hundred dollars they're always going to be 70 percent of the near mint price is going to be the hp price and that's that's pretty exploitable that i've Mm -hmm. i've found ways to exploit that in the past because that's not always true for for dual lands, you know. Sometimes the premium is more than thirty percent for a near mint copy. Sometimes the premium is less. So that that can be sort of quite important to understand. But hearkening back to your sort of liquidity question, following dual lands liquidity based on buy list trends over the last couple of months has been super interesting because people like CK and Star City have they've really gone on a roller coaster of of dual land buy list prices because they started the year kind of weak. They weren't that aggressive compared to TCG player. Um, they kind of rocketed up pretty quickly where they were paying most of the buy lists were around 80% of low on on play dual lands for probably one or two months. So we saw a really good buy list backing uh, earlier this year. And and now it's it's pulled back a ton where you're seeing CK and Star City paying pretty poorly on duels. And there's not a whole lot of other people picking up the slack. But we're still seeing a good amount of liquidity in the market on TCG player side, where these duels are still 
selling. They may not be selling as fast as they were a couple months ago, but the prices seem to be maintaining and continuing. They're definitely not increasing, but they're also not falling the whole time. So that's been interesting to follow. I don't know if you have any insight, because I know you've been collecting a lot of the sales data for duels over the last uh, couple months. Or a couple My... weeks, I guess. I don't have that <laughs> much history. Yeah, I think we've got about a month's worth of data now. But uh, my, I'm, and I'm going to fall back on something I hate here because I don't have an answer, but I always, I have a, a theory immediately because um, sure. I saw this happen with when COVID hit. They did the same thing. As I know, when the larger vendors either um, expect the market to sell out of what they have initially, mm -hmm. they will all pull their copies from the market because they know that if they're the last one standing, you can really jack up the price. And if you have the capital to hold steady, on your stacks. In the meantime, you're, you're golden. So if you make your offer very low, but you will have you know a, a large amount behind you, and just you just let the open market run out of what's out there, or the and they drive the price up for you. You kind of let them do the work. The other thing too is if you expect a retrace in the market, it also does make sense to kind of pull back and just kind of sit on top of your sit on top of your pile of gold, which is what I was referencing earlier. So that would yeah. be my working theory, but. Uh, I don't know. There's also a gap in what I can see with these cards, which I think we'll, we'll we'll definitely touch on as we go on here. But yeah, sure. And then, I mean, I guess the interesting piece that you have is sort of compared to TCG Low from your data point. Do you think that um, revised? Do you think that TCG Low is a good way to be pricing revised duels right now, um, based on sort of the sales velocity and the sales data that we're seeing? That's such a tough question. So, yeah. Uh, I think I have to default to yes, just because I will default to yes anytime anyone asks me if TCG Low is the right price point to use, simply because I am very familiar with the percent composition of what consumers are paying to TCG Player versus everyone else, at least yeah. as of four months ago. So um, I'll say this, when one, with, when one marketplace makes up over half of everything, I think that's a solid metric to use. Uh, now, I hesitate for two reasons, simply because I hate comparing other closed market vendors like Card Kingdom, Star City Games, Channel Fireball, where it's one entity against an open marketplace where 27 idiots can fight their way down, uh, yeah. because that's not really a fair compare. However, I think to what you were saying before, I do think that the, the TCG low, especially for these, because it is the most competitive landscape, uh, is probably the 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 best price point to go by um but to your point too uh, about sales data my my data is too spotty for me to say that i'm really relying on any kind of uh churn churn prices outside of just the price trends going up or down yeah so so do you have any sort of uh, thoughts based on the data that you have about like revised duels or, or other certain certain spots within the market right now uh, so if i was to tell you honestly with the information that i'm looking at i will not go anywhere near them <laughs> Wow, you're scared. The sales rate is is horrendously low. Uh, yeah. And I understand the margins might be high on them, but I don't want to be stuck holding, uh, let's see, the one that I've got pulled up here. Uh, like, I don't want to be stuck holding a Tropical Island revised. You know, it's like a $700 card. I don't want to be stuck holding like five of those for yeah. what looks to be a very, it looks from the data that I'm looking at, it looks like it sells one copy every two days. Now, uh, we talked about this before we started going. It is very important to note the data that I'm looking at does not show listings on TCG that have pictures, which is, I believe, and I don't have the experience, so I'll rely on you to confirm this just after, but I believe that's how the majority of sellers sell these high-end items, right? With scans and pictures. 
So it's actually kind of interesting. I don't think that the majority of sellers um, sell these items with pictures. But what I do think is that I think a lot, a, a bigger, a disproportionate amount of the sales are with pictures. So relative to mm. the amount of sellers who are listing, I really do think when you're getting up to MP and HP items that cost over a hundred bucks, I think there's a real consumer preference towards pictures. And I think that's one interesting point because when you you go back to sort of comparing to Card Kingdom or Star City, that even if their prices are a little bit better on these, Star City, I mean, it takes a day to get pictures. Card Kingdom takes a day to get pictures or even more right now. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think that pictures are an incredibly important part of the market. And that's one of the issues. We, it's very hard to capture that data that's out there right now and sort of understand how picture listings are, in, are affecting the market. I mean, they've become an increasingly important part of my strategy as um, they minimize condition disputes. Um, they allow you to be very much more flexible with how you list things. You don't have to think about, you know, oh, is this seller going to sort of nitpick this? You can just kind of make it very clear to the seller and that which the buyer, sorry. Mm-hmm. And that can really help the buyer's confidence when they're buying really expensive items. So I think the picture listings have been incredibly interesting. I know that other vendors have also been using them extensively. I know TOA Magic has, has pretty much yeah. posting all of their high-end inventory with pictures. I'm posting all of my inventory with, with pictures. And I think that uh, any other sellers on TCG Player who are listing cards over a hundred bucks that aren't, you know, always near mint, like a Strixhaven, you know, Japanese demonic tutor should probably be listing them with pictures as well. That's been one of my biggest takeaways lately. It's hard for me because, well, one, I'm sitting on data that shows me the copy, the number of copies on the market and how they change day over day. I'm just too lazy to actually look at the difference. And that should, I guess, in theory, capture the picture listings because I do still have that data. However, the churn rate, the rate, the number of copies sold each day will will not have that information. So I could potentially yeah. do a calculated field for the, the older sets, but it's just is a lot of work. <laughs> It's hard. No, it's really hard to capture this data. And that, and that's one of the things that that's uh, really challenging about the market right now is that uh, I think a lot of people are very uncertain with how they how they mm-hmm. price cards and pricing cards has become a little bit more difficult. Uh, because when you when we're, we're looking, when we go to TCG players gospel, sometimes it can be a little <laughs> bit misleading, because yeah. I, I feel like once you get to a lot of the sort of the more thinly traded items, so once we're surpassing revised duels, and let's say go to legends, um, and once we get to a lot of these bigger cards, Chains of Metastopheles, Moat, or even some of the smaller cards, like weird shit, like Land Equilibrium or Acid Rain, it, it can become kind of uh, leaning on TCG player alone can really cause issues. You know, for example, the collection I bought recently, I pretty much didn't use TCG players and metric when evaluating what I wanted to pay for stuff because I knew that it was going to be misleading and there was going to be a lot of spotty holes in the information. And one of the ways it can be really misleading is is cards like Acid Rain. So I know Wolf has this data and he he can look at it and essentially say, you know, Acid Rains are trading for between 150 and 100 bucks right now or even less, right? Is that right for Acid Rain right now, the latest sales data. Well, I see Acid Rain is actually selling at around 167. So from for all the for all the I was looking at the sales data earlier today and it looked like it was there was a couple of higher ones between over 100, but most of the latest sales were between 70 and 100. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think cards like Acid Rain are where TCG can be really deceiving. I mean, TCG was sort of over $200 for a while, um, and and most of the online sellers were, but. You know, in all true honesty, when you look at some of the sales data recently, 
and you look at eBay sold, the car is only worth about a hundred to around a hundred dollars, depending on condition. I'm, I'm talking about English copies, obviously. And, yeah, and I think that the, that's where TCG player can get really deceptive. And, and one of the things I think a lot of sellers should realize is that some buyers who are coming to buy these cards are going to check other marketplaces. And so even if you're the cheapest seller on TCG player, that might, might not mean a whole lot when they're seeing eBay sold at a hundred bucks and they're seeing the TCG player sales at 70 to hundred or even as 150. Cause if your items at 250, that still feels, you know, way too high. So I feel like it's really important, especially now when we've got a lot of these price spikes and stuff to think about how you're pricing stuff and, you know, I have a lot of my items partially listed at potentially hundreds or even thousands of dollars less than the next listing, just because I know that, you know, where Facebook and where eBay sold is compared to my items is still pretty favorable. Like, for example, mm-hmm. I have an HP Time Twister up right now for $6,500. I think that is, I, I'm not sure, but 500 to to $1,000 cheaper than the next listing on TCG Player. But, you know, compared to eBay or Facebook, it's... It's a very fair price. And I think I've had a lot of sort of success from that um, because I'm sort of heavily undercutting the market relative to TCG, but compared to market prices, I'm I'm spot on or even slightly above, but still able to get sales because compared to TCG, I'm quite cheap, you know? Yeah, so that leads to another question, I, I believe. I think this is one step in front of the other is how do you get your costs low enough where you can do that consistently and profitably? Well, I think it's uh, one of the big pieces is figuring out sort of framing how you're purchasing cards and framing how the person how how the person you're you're buying from thinks about the purchase. I had a extensive conversation about this uh, last night with Liz who's who's in here and mm-hmm. you know, you really got to think about, you know, if my client buy lists to Card Kingdom a lot, you know, I might be able to buy stuff from them quite cheaply. If I can pay well relative to Card Kingdom, even if Card Kingdom's buy list is 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 quite bad compared to the rest of the market, and mm-hmm. I think that's an important piece of uh, sort of understanding how to buy cards effectively. Because if you're not thinking about what the the person who's selling you the cards is thinking about, you're not really getting a holistic view of what where the opportunities exist, right? Yep. I mean, you think about that when uh, when you're thinking about specs to buy, right? Because you're thinking about where you're going to end up selling the card. And mm-hmm. you've got places where you know that, you know, maybe a lot of EDH players don't frequent. So if you're going to sell the card on TCG Player Direct, where there's a lot of EDH sales, you know, there's definitely a lot of opportunity to move between those markets and sort of yeah. frame those buys. I think that's really important. I, I do too. I think we we definitely attack the market from very different angles, but I, I really like how you phrase it because I do the exact same thing to to a degree in terms of I look at I, I put way too much time into trying to figure out my own algorithmic approach to weighting it versus all the market variables. What's the churn rate? What's the price? What's the change? What's the buy list? You know, what's the inventory and all of this? And I wrote all of this and it, it took me like two or three months to, to create it. And then I put all that effort into it and it wasn't very successful. And then I realized, okay, what if I just take all of the buy lists out there and I just weight it by the uh, dollar volume that they make up of the market and whoever's the biggest, I beat their offer by 50 cents. And I've made so much money just doing that. 
just find yeah. what is either the largest, like the best offer or who ha has the largest storefront presence. And I yeah. will just beat their offer by 50 cents and just let that sit out there. And that just drives people, even though the, the value might be 40% of the card's worth. So yeah, yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. And I think that that comes back to um, sort of one of your strategies and one of my strategies that I previously used. I, I used it less now, but you buy a lot on Cardsphere, right? That's where you're talking about where you're putting out these offers, right? Yeah, yeah. I put in I put in fifteen hundred a week into Cardsphere. Yeah, I mean, I think Cardsphere is incredibly interesting because that comes back to the framing argument. Because when you think about a Cardsphere seller, all of most of their framing is compared to the relative index and what other sellers are paying. Um, mm -hmm. And then also, I think one of an interesting effect that I see common on Cardsphere, I don't know if you see it very often. I, it's more of a, it's more of a gut feel. It's less statistical, but I often feel like when cards spike on Cardsphere, because of the price limiting feature, um, <laughs> the, the offers will really fall away. And sometimes those cards can still be really solid buys at you know 60% of this new spiked index price. So one of, I don't know if you do this, but I, in the past, I've tried to pick up some spiked cards on Cardsphere because the offers will come away and then sellers will see this really high index price and they'll accept a lower percentage on their sale. I don't know if you do that. I have a completely overthought strategy. And I'll be honest, my entire strategy for, for Cardsphere is entirely out of my hands now yeah. i have no idea like i know if i were to look at my script and i were to break it down segment by segment i mean i have a jenny craig section i have a parlor trick section i have a like <laughs> i have a, an addition section i have a bias trend section i have i have all of these different things that I'll, I'll kind of like add in and then if there's any duplicates i'll just drop to whatever the lowest offer is unless that is lower than a bias then i'll match bias so I, I have created a really large decision tree of yes, no decisions. And so for, for me, but I will say one thing that I did consistently get burned on, which I finally had to, to, to implement was release date from MGG JSON, I think is the most important thing that I've, I like just simple check in terms of, I don't care how popular or how well modern horizons two are selling right now. I don't want to buy them because I know prices are going to plummet for the most recent set in the first three weeks. So that was something. Um, yeah. but to your point of the news alerts, I, I think it's comical, um, card sphere. I love you, but in their attempt to create a sheltered marketplace, they've just made it ripe for abuse in a whole new way. Well, I don't, that I is... wouldn't, I wouldn't call it abuse. I wouldn't call it abuse. I think, I think Cardsphere <laughs> has successfully prevented a lot of people from having bad experiences where they'll have a 60% yes. offer on a card that goes from $20 to $50 and they'll, they'll pay too much and they'll, and they'll be, they'll be mad because the way a fixed percentage of offer sort of changes over time is, is problematic. It's, it's tough to tell. So yeah. I, I really think it's it's interesting to sort of think about how the sellers think on the platform because <laughs> does your algorithm take into account other cards for your offers that are on the site? Absolutely. However, um, the reason why I chose e-commerce instead of dealing with collections is that I never have to think about what the seller's mentality is. I, I never have to, because I feel like 
half and and please this is definitely me overstepping my bounds but this is my belief of the matter is that when you buy a collection half of what you're really doing is providing therapy to somebody because you're providing often, therapy you're providing liquidity you're doing a lot of labor but um, but you you have to do a lot of kind of like uh almost like emotional support because obviously it means something to them or it meant something to them at least at some point in time and now to extract it from them you know, do and I do think having that face-to-face -face element does take a certain kind of strength and, and negotiating yeah. that I just don't have. But from an e-commerce perspective, I, you know, sue me. I don't care if they feel bad if they took the time out of their day to lock it in and send, or you know, to say this is what I want it for, and I'm going to send it in. Like, so I think you're, I think you're misconstruing a little bit of what I'm saying. I'm more talking <laughs> about how the client thinks about when they're looking at Wolf of Ten Streets. Cards for your profile, and they're thinking, you know, which of these are good offers? What am I going to send you? Um, how they sort of what their thought process is, because obviously you try to beat other other offers within the market, and you you look. I mean, I'm assuming you care where the index is, right? You look for spots where you can offer really well as a percentage basis, but it ends up being you know wildly in your favor when compared to other metrics, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That, well, I think that I, I won't say uh, in compared to necessarily in compared to other metrics, because a lot of what I do is forecasting. Now, there is there is definitely an element that I do wherein I'm going to look at 20 different buy lists. And if I know the top three are offering this, but, you know, kind of like a rogue one is offering two or three more dollars and it's more than X percent of the card's actual value. I'll I'll match that offer in in that sense. Yeah, I am checking the index, but well, I, the, the, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I mean that that's totally that's totally you know comparing your framing your buying opportunity within comparing it to another metric and making your offer look really good, right? Yes, for sure. However, that's probably like twenty five percent of what I do. The rest of it, I know that my offer is better than anybody else's out on the marketplace, and that's how I know when I put five hundred dollars in Monday morning. I usually do Monday, Wednesday, Friday to match up with the TCG Direct. It sells out in an hour because I know by not just like a couple percentage points, I know that my offer will beat everybody else on the internet who is has a standing offer on the card by a wide degree because I do a lot of forecasting, I do a lot of data analysis that I know they don't. Uh, so but, I, I- But don't you think you're leaving some sort of, some money on the table by sort of assuming that your sellers are rational and that they're gonna check Card Kingdom and they're gonna check Star City and they're gonna check, you know, mm -hmm. Troll and Toad, right? Like, I don't think they're gonna do that. They're just gonna look at the percentage and sort of maybe check TCG Blit, right? I agree. This is how I keep it ethical in my head. So it doesn't matter how upset you are that you sent it to me if the price point changes, because I know I was your best offer on the table at the time. And if things moved in my favor, I took a risk greater than anybody else in the marketplace. So I deserve to be rewarded, which oh, is definitely I personal. And yeah, I definitely leave money on the table. But that's how I that, that's why it doesn't bother me. Oh, I, I feel like I feel like I, I'm getting a little bit of a conflict here. Of like you want to step out of the emotional aspect of the card. And you don't care about what they um what the what happens after they commit the card but at the same time you're trying to make an ethical justification for why you're fair right like you, I, I feel like you're not really picking one here well, i mean i'm trying to do both <laughs> it's tough it's tough yeah 
I think I mean, the and that's is, a, I think that's a hard line to draw, right? Yeah, no, it's tough, and I think it's I think it's interesting, and it and it brings up this sort of framing example and contexts that are less personal. You know, you can think mm-hmm. about framing in context of a buy of of a person, like what does that person think of, or you can think of framing in context of uh, a, a marketplace, so card sphere. You know, what are the metrics they care about, mm-hmm. and I think that, that that's something that I'm I'm sort of thinking about more now because I'm starting to realize there's a lot of spots where it's very important and it's not really thought about. So that's kind of interesting. Definitely. I think a lot of this kind of mentality about how you, uh, and I know I'm, I think I brought it up more than you did, but <laughs> in terms of kind of ethically uh, sourcing cards, like what it, what is like the point where you can make an offer where you also know you're going to get uh, like a good a good enough profit margin to justify your time and your effort. Um, and I think it's difficult to to kind of draw that line. However, I know, and I think this was kind of like the inspiration for for kind of this this particular sit down, that you recently uh, went down to Florida and had a, uh, a huge no, collection. No, no, I was, I was, so oh. I asked about Florida for something else, but I went to Michigan actually. Um, <laughs> you're throwing you're throwing misdirections all over the board. No, no, I mean you you can check the chat. I I asked about Michigan on 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 like Thursday evening, um, yeah. and I, I I was on a plane Friday morning. But yeah, I think I think the the ethical question is really interesting, and especially within the context of of buying larger collections, you know, you have to think about how you're being fair to the seller, and think about sort of how you go about the transaction. And for the ethical framing, I think it was. It was really interesting for me because this is the first time I've spent, you know, more than low five figures on a collection. This is the first time I w- I've been sort of flying out to a client and where like, you actually have to think about a bill of sale, like you're wiring them a ton of money. There's there's a lot of moving parts here. And I think it was, is really interesting because this is the first time where I had to sort of walk through the collection, talk to them about it, fully understand it, and then also sort of keep them at ease. Um, and, and I think a, a big ethical portion of this, uh, when you're thinking about buying large collections or, or buying any collection is, is just making sure the customer has a, has a good experience. Cause I think there's a lot of people and not necessarily people in band, but there's a lot, there's some people in this industry who they gun for the lowest price. They negotiate, they negotiate aggressively. They may not negotiate in good faith and they may, they may leave a bad taste in the seller's mouth. And, you know, I was really happy with how the collection ended up going. because so I think the, the seller was, was very satisfied or happy with the offer. They were happy with sort of how everything went. And I think that that's, that's really important. And I think, yeah, not to pull back to, to framing for like the 20th time tonight, but it, I think part, part of that was because sort of compared to what they were looking at, I was treating them very fairly and I was sort of being very upfront about a lot of things, you know, and that, that was super helpful when I was sort of going through this process. And I think I learned a lot from that because I sort of understood how sort of some of the pitfalls where, you know, you have to sort of respect the cards that they have. You don't really want to say, Oh, you know, your powers, you know, really rough. I can't pay you that well on it because that's going to make them feel really bad about, about what they're doing. And that may think that may make them question or second guess, or, you know, is this guy being upfront with me? Is this guy being truthful about what he's doing? You know, is he just trying to get this stuff for cheap? And that stuff's 
really hard. That's the, those are the, the sort of very intricate parts, which I don't even think I have down right now. Cause I, I think I made a ton of mistakes, you know? So that was, that was super interesting when I was thinking about this. Yeah, no, for sure. Is I know I have specific questions that I like, I can throw at you, but sure. yeah, yeah. Throw some, throw some questions at me. Well, I'm I'm curious because you mentioned that you, you know you learned a lot. You kind of had like a game plan going in, and that game plan I'm I'm assuming changed, and you already think you made uh, a couple of mistakes. Totally. So, oh, totally. My, my question up. to you now uh, is: I, I just want to know what was your game plan going in? If there's like a sequential order to it, and you know what you know what happened at each stage, obviously be as you know as vague or as comfortable as you need to be in the retelling of it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think one. So the the first part that everybody sort of thinks about within a negotiation or any collection buyer or any buy in general is like how you're going to negotiate around the price. You know, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about you know I don't know if you you like to offer first to sort of you know set the expectations for the negotiation or whether you want to get a number from them so that you can sort of think about how they got to that number and what they may be missing when they're building that number. Um, but but the first mistake I made is. I was getting this collection through a third, I got the lead through a third party and I threw a number out to the third party and the third party passed it directly to the, to the person who was selling. And so I kind of revealed a lot of information that I probably should have concealed um, because it really could have screwed me in the end because I made some assumptions with coming up with that number and some of those assumptions were right and a lot of those assumptions were wrong. So I think a big thing is sort of when you're building an offer for a collection, building some sort of range, you need to make sure you have a lot of information before you before you put out a number because you know if you start at X and then you find out you know this card is damaged, this card is damaged, this set is missing this, you know this card is ink, and then you have to offer X minus thirty percent. You know the seller may be get may get apprehensive and you may just you may end up with a brick wall of just like you started this number, we're now down to this. I don't think you're being fair. They might walk so. First mistake was throwing a number out without enough information. And then I also I also think another mistake that I made was I uh, figuring out condition on on a very expensive cards is super hard. You know, figuring out how other people grade cards, you know, what they think is you know enough edgeware to go from LP to MP. You know, what what type of bend they think you know takes a card to HP is is really tough. And that's one of the that's one of the key parts that I've sort of I've I've thought about and I've understood um, from this interaction. I think it ended up being fine because a lot of the stuff was in really good condition. But um, I really could have I could have screwed up because if this was in a lot worse condition than I thought, I, I don't think I would have been able to make the deal because I started too high. So that that was sort of really important. So that's kind of twofold of building the right number. And what factors and assumptions you take into account um, when when coming up with that number? Because you can do certain stuff like assuming everything is LP or MP or HP, and then being pleasantly surprised. But if you're doing that, you sort of have to make sure that still ends up being sort of relatively fair when compared to what the cards are actually worth. You know, so that was my one of my first mistakes was making bad assumptions and throwing out. A number too early. Um, I think another one of my mistakes was back to the framing thing is I didn't think about how my my client came up with their number, and I ended up not finding out what number they roughly wanted before until sort of much later into the negotiation. 
So I gave up a big piece of information where I could have asked them, what are you looking for? You know, how did you come up with that number? And those two answers would have given me a ton of ability to sort of think about how I want to formulate my offer and actually give a much more sort of informed decision. And so those, those were my, I think my clear mistakes um, going into, going into the collection. No, no, that makes complete sense. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated though. Uh, and you know, we're doing a lot of callbacks to, to things we touched on earlier. I just like that we have now the case example um, of when you get that information from the client about how they've come up with their number and what they're expecting. I would assume that also gives you a lot of information about, you know, what kind of offer now can I do with the broader information that you have to maximize your own uh, profit margins, but at the same time, keep them potentially calm. So what, what is that kind of decision process? Like, I mean, where do you, first of all, like draw the line, not only towards the client, like that's just ridiculous. That's like, you know, that, that knee jerk reaction of you're crazy. That's way too high. And also at the same time, if they quote you a number, that's way too low, you know, how do you, how would you go about those two? And I, I know these are theoretical cases, not potentially what happened here. I'm just curious. Well, yeah. I mean, the number ended up that, that, that was in their mind would ended up being relatively fair and, and pretty close to where I was at. So I got, I got lucky there. I, that was, that was mainly luck. That was not skill. But I mean, if the, if they, if they had said, said, you know, X, if, if they had said, you know, I, I'm looking for 1.5 X, what my sort of initial offer was. Well then, you know, it's really tough because even if you know how they got to that number, walking them back off, that's really hard. And kind of, kind of, if they're too high, it's really hard to deal with. I think the only thing that I can say towards that is, is if they actually want to transact in the whole chunk, essentially frame your offer within the context of what other people are willing to pay. So if they're too high and you can't really talk them down, be like, hey, you can't ask for a TCG low, 90% of TCG low on your $150,000 worth of cards. You know, a lot of this stuff is old school. TCG is a bad metric. And I, you know, I also can't make any money on 90% low. And you got to make sure they don't become defensive. And I, I think the biggest thing is like knowing when, like, if the number's really high and you can't talk them down, don't waste your time. Uh, you know, I, I know... I've chased, I've tried to chase down so many collections over the last couple of years, mostly ones not very large. And one of the key signs is just like, if somebody's too high, either decline to offer or give them, give them a second to rationalize it and try to talk to them a little bit, but just understand that you, there may not be an opportunity for you to make money. Um, mm-hmm. When somebody's too low, I, I, I generally think that most people aren't, I, I haven't run into that uh very often um generally when people would be too low it's in scenarios where they're not super educated on it and generally when they're too low they're either haven't you know haven't thought about these cards in a long time and i generally come up with a number that i think is fair and i essentially shoot first on those scenarios so i don't really run into the too low very often uh, it's it, it hasn't happened to me and i i think the majority of scenarios are where with you're within 20% of the seller um, and you sort of are able to, to contextualize it well. You don't really have to worry about big disparities in your offer unless it's going to go south, which would sometimes it can with the, when, when they're way higher than you are. Gotcha. 
So I think we, we've talked a, a good deal about the negotiations. Is there anything else you want to throw in before we move on to potentially with the actual contents of the collection? Um, I mean, I guess, I guess the contents and the valuing of the collection, they, they kind of fall hand in hand. Um, I think that, that, that part's pretty interesting. This part I'm willing to share. So essentially the collection that I picked up was uh, most of a beta set um, with like a couple of the higher end cards, but no power, very few duels. There wasn't a ton of like really high end beta stuff, but there was a few. And then there was uh, most of an unlimited set of power. There was no Lotus. And then there was a four horseman set with a couple cards missing and a couple cards extra. So it evened out to be those sort of those pieces. And those pieces are super hard to offer on right now because pricing is really difficult because you know, Card Kingdom's not buying everything. TCG players, pretty hard metric. eBay sold is really slow. You know, you don't have two days to check every single eBay sold on a legend set, an Arabian set, an antiquity set, a beta set, unlimited power. So I leaned heavily on Star City Games buy list for this. And, you know, there were some problems with that because right now Star City's paying really well on beta. And sometimes they're paying more than market, you know. I've flipped beta cards to Star City over the last couple months. So I had to be really careful to make sure that, you know, even if I had buy list as an out, I I wasn't essentially looking to make no money, just essentially taking a big chunk of this collection and selling immediately to Star City. Because, you know, they're not gonna pay you out 20, 30 grand um at once you know they'll put you on time payments so like thinking of buy list as your sole out especially one buy list one bigger collections like this is really it, it can get hairy especially if things go south so i i leaned on them a lot but i sort of contextualized them and i tried to make sure that um i was comparing them to what stuff's actually getting sold for and make sure that at least there's some spots where star city isn't the highest so MTG Seattle and, and people like Card King allowed me to sort of, I looked over their data and like, okay, Star City's not totally crazy here. You know, this is about where buy list is. This means that I still have margin on it. And that's how I sort of built that offer out. And I think that this is a very different collection than most. Um, old school collections are really hard because A, most of the people who have them have had them for a long time. B, the cards are really expensive and understanding what you have to offer on really high-end cards because you know it's not that much work for the seller to go sell a mox. You know, you could put a thing on eBay and put a $1 auction and your mox will sell for 80, 90% of, of its full value. So how you offer on that is really hard. Um, and then thinking about relative to where the market is, you know, you got to make sure you're not, you're not going to lose your ass. Because if I had bought this collection in April and had held it a little bit too long, my turnaround time wasn't good, this could have gotten really bad. And, and I mean, there's still a chance that, you know, I don't think it'll happen, but there's a chance that the market could go down on a big chunk of the stuff that I bought. And I made sure to, to build that into my offer so I have wiggle room so I'm not sort of underwater on a, of some stuff really quickly. Mm -hmm. No, that makes, makes a lot of sense. And a big piece that you, when you're evaluating these big collections, is yeah, I'm lucky because I'm a I'm a developer. I I know how to use a lot of tools um, and think about where where the data where I can pull the data from. Um, and that's one of the really hard parts because if you don't know how to pull down tons and tons of Star City and Card Kingdom data, you can often end up sort of spinning your wheels and be like, you know, I'm not gonna sort of 
manually put an entire Arabian like oh, I, I can't spend five hours figuring out what buy list is on all these cards mm-hmm. really quickly. So that's one of the things that I actually use quiet speculation for. I know that's a bit of a taboo word here, but um, quiet spec still has yeah, quiet spec still has full buy list and retail uh, pricing data for a lot of old sets, and their data is really good. So that's one thing that sort of helped me a little bit. Um, that's one that's one thing that I think a lot of people overlook, where it definitely doesn't it def- definitely doesn't give you a huge a perfect insight into into how much you should offer on something because obviously it's only near mint and you know some of their some of their data might be a little bit old but it definitely helped mm-hmm. it helped me a lot to make sure you know oh i'm not crazy here i'm not i'm not paying too much on this yeah. um, and that was that was really tough so uh as much as i hate quiet spec and i think they are a very overpriced and uh not super useful piece of software especially compared to bam this i did use them to, to figure out what I wanted to pay. I, I don't think I don't think we have the right to, to call quiet spec overpriced uh, here at Band since I'm pretty sure our minimum sub is, is double what they've got. But again, I think whatever tool, so long as it works, is yeah. is great. I mean, I'm, even if you like, even if you go over to MDG Price, if that's a tool that helps, that's phenomenal. I mean, those tools should be readily available. And you're right when you don't have access to them, you you are giving yourself so much risk exposure that you shouldn't have to so I, I think any way that you can minimize that whatever tool is best for the job you know absolutely makes all the sense in the world and another piece is using multiple tools of you know looking at i mean i guess you could use mtg goldfish's set ev or you can you you mm-hmm. can use a bunch of different tools to help you get a bunch of data points in order to make a make a make a fair offer and i think that's sort of really important where ban is awesome and it's got a ton of data and it's really good, but it isn't yet a one-stop shop for everything you need to figure out what you want to offer on something. So that's tough. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'll, I'll be very honest here too. I don't think Ban ever will be. I, I don't, I think the, the even with just Magic, let alone Pokemon and, and, and any other collectible you want to do, it's so expansive. I think you're always going to need four or five tools. I think you always should have five or six tools that you're auditing yourself with. So absolutely. Um, in terms of what this collection actually consisted of, what actually got you on a plane flying out there? I mean, wh- what are we talking? Are we talking like a bunch of power nine here? Or are we talking yeah, just no. a bunch of no, yeah, it, was, it was eight pieces of power and, cool. you know, Arabian set, antiquity set, legend set, dark, the dark set, and a bunch of beta. And that got me on a plane because that stuff's expensive. It's hard to acquire, <laughs> and there's a lot of it. And and one thing that um, uh, TOA Michael has mentioned a few times um, with when he considers collections is it's a lot about having a sort of a wide spectrum of stuff. And the nice thing about this collection is even though it was very concentrated in old school, and you know a lot of things that have become very expensive lately. Um, which is definitely sort of a red flag and you need to make sure you're mm-hmm. not sort of concentrating too much in one area. And I'm probably guilty of concentrating too much in reserve list and old cards. Um, but it did give me a lot of sort of, it wasn't deep. It wasn't, I wasn't getting 20 of any card. I was getting one of a ton of stuff and four of some playables. And that that was kind of reassuring because when you're buying stuff that's somewhat volatile, 
having a big diversity of stock. It's kind of like an index fund where, you know, I'm bu- you're buying an index fund of Arabian Nights where, you know, maybe there's some cars that are that are overpriced. You know, maybe Pyramid is too expensive right now, but Juzam Jin is, is all good. So I think a big piece that got me on the plane was the fact that it was pretty diverse. Like I wasn't, I wasn't getting three time walks and no mox jets. I was getting one of a bunch of stuff because the marginal utility, I mean, I, I talked to two way about this as well. The marginal utility of a card is not that good. It's, it's not, you know, you, you can't sell, you know, 20, like you can't sell 20, the same card, the same way you can sell one of the same card, you know? So that's, yeah, that, no, that's a big thing considering that. I think running a generally shallow ship on everything is phenomenal because it it just ensures that even if it's a slow rate of sales, when you make the sale, you make it back. So I think that that makes a ton of sense. Now, um, the next question I have, and I, and I like that you've mentioned um, you know uh, TOA because I think he's uh, by far I know or I would be able to believe that he's by far got the most experience buying collections in the entire band Discord and and much in a much wider area than that. Um, but what what allowed you to kind of get this kind of call or this kind of opportunity to to kind of go out there and, and get kind of I would assume almost and I might be wrong on this, but um, even if not the first crack, but just a crack at a collection like this as opposed to say him going to like a major vendor like MTG Seattle or TOA or, or somebody else of, of that kind of size and, and reputation? So I do a lot of networking and I think networking is really, really important. And especially when you're providing value within those sort of connections where, for example, there's some local vendors that I work with that, you know, I've told them, you know, they don't really like collector's edition stuff, but I've moved, you know, a ton of collector's edition this year. I think my most profitable item this year has been collector's edition time twisters. Um, and I've told people that, you know, I'm interested in this stuff. I can move this stuff. Let me know if you find any, because they don't really want to buy it. They don't have experience with it. They don't have the clientele. So it's, it's all about knowing what you want and people knowing that they can sort of tap on you and you're, you'd be interested and you'll want to go and do it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's an, it's, it's about sort of spreading far and wide of, you know, when somebody hears about a big collection, you kind of get notified. Um, And that's really hard, you know, and you also have to be willing to pay for those leads. You know, I know there's a lot of people in the band discord who will pay for good information, you know, when, when like, Commander collectors box, Commander Legends collectors boxes popped up on Amazon. You know, there was a there was some some kickbacks paid for because that was really good profitable information. And the same is true for collections. Like you cannot expect for people just to tell you about something that you're going to make a ton of money off of. You have to expect mm-hmm. to compensate people for that stuff, and that's really important. Like one of the most important pieces to actually having people knock on your door. Uh, And it's also about having sort of consistent business relationships with a lot of people because there's people that I work with where I don't make a ton of money, but the relationship is extremely valuable because I know if there's an opportunity in the future for me to work with somebody or do something, they will be there for me. So that's a big piece of, of finding and getting the opportunities to buy these collections. And then the other big piece is having money. 
you have to have a lot of capital <laughs> and you, you either have to have access to a lot of capital or you have to have a lot of capital yourself. This was very good timing for me. I had been essentially not buying a ton for the last two months. I'd mainly just been selling at a, at a smaller clip than what I was earlier this year, but still selling at a pretty rapid rate compared to how I was buying. So I happened to be in a very, very good position. And, you know, I was, I was on the hunt. I, I, I let people know that, you know, I'm looking for something big. And I looked at a collection three weeks ago that didn't really pan out, but this one sort of came my way and it worked out. So it's yeah. tough. I, 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 I mean, I think the hardest part about this inventory, this, this industry is inventory acquisition at any scale. <laughs> Finding profitable inventory to sell yeah. is really hard. Uh, I, I can't give that one away. Uh, there's, there's no answer to that question. Absolutely, I, I wouldn't give mine away. And if anybody doesn't believe me, rewind the tape to when I was talking about card sphere and hit behind an algorithm. So, <laughs> um, well, I mean, now uh, we've we've given away card sphere. We've told, I've I've been a card sphere evangelist for MTG Finance people. You you've been a little bit of an evangelist. We're telling people about card sphere. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's freaking fantastic. However, now that you uh, again deflecting, now that you have this collection, though, what what's the game plan for it? So, I mean, you mentioned that you you'd been pulling back for two months. So, I'm a little bit curious as to why there was that pullback, uh, and then kind of the the excitement, and then just the the jump to go ahead and get this collection. Yeah. This, so what's yeah? Go ahead. So the pullback it was less about. Selling less was less about market conditions. I just thought I didn't have that many opportunities and I wasn't putting in a ton of time to sort of find those opportunities. I was kind of focused, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was kind of, I was kind of lazy. I wasn't, I wasn't putting in the effort to sort of find it. And uh, about a month ago, maybe a little more than a month ago, I kind of realized that, you know, I think potentially the best way for me to spend a lot of this, spend a lot of the capital that I've built up is, is go find a collection. Um, and that's when I kind of pivoted a little bit, talked to a few people you know, got a few leads that were good and were, was able to execute on them. Uh, but now that I have the collection, I happen to know a lot of dealers and I know where good chunks of this stuff are going to go. You know, I've already, I've already got a couple orders off and sort of big chunks of the collection are gone because I kind of knew where my margins were really good on and I, I knew what I could get rid of pretty quickly. And I work with people because, you know, evaluating a collection like this is hard to do on your own. So I talked with a lot of different people um, about sort of how I should approach it, how I should value it, what some of the pitfall may be. And then it was a little bit of sort of kicking back to a lot of these people um, and selling, you know, chunks off to them. So sort of not trying to grind out every last penny from this collection. Because then you'd go insane. So. As it always goes, you leave the last bit to somebody else, right? Yeah, you gotta you gotta leave ten percent in the bulk, uh, or else uh, Star City will ban you. Uh, you know, yeah. you don't you don't you don't, don't want to get banned from selling bulk to Star City. That that that's how it goes. Don't, don't I, do that. I was just thinking of it as like just going green, Le leaving some for the next guy on the path. Oh yeah, um, I, I, that's just my example. Don't don't blueprint your bulk and then take it. To some <laughs> then you won't be selling any more bulk to them. So and this might be this is going to be me winding down a little bit, but when when you go to purchase a collection of this size and this magnitude, do market conditions really enter your mind for for singles? Like, is that really a major factor, or is like how does that kind of enter in, or does it not? 
I mean, it kept me up at night. Like I did not <laughs> sleep well Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday night. Um, I mean, it definitely enters your mind. But I, I've I talk with a lot of people about where I think the market is, and I can see my own sales. And you know, they're definitely not as good as they were two months ago. But I don't think the bottom is going to fall out. You know, I don't think that you know, revised underground seeds are not going to be three hundred dollars in December. So I have confidence. So yeah, it I definitely would. does enter my mind. It's it's it is, a, it is a big factor, but it's also a big factor that you've got a big pile of cash that's eating away at interest. So if you don't have, if you don't spend it, you're in a. I would I would have been in a not amazing position because. <laughs> I think that's a sentiment that uh, I don't hear often enough. But uh, if you've got the money, you got to spend it, right? Yeah, and and that can that can be that can be a problem. I mean, that can lead you to make a bad buy. And I yeah. think there was a chance. There's a chance that I could have fucked up, and I could have like this buy could have been bad. And I don't think it was. You know, I've been crunching the numbers, and it looks pretty good. But uh, you know, there there was a chance that uh the 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 money burning a hole in my pocket could have led me to make a bad decision so that would have been bad so i think just winding down to uh, i think what's going to be my final question for you here is uh and you you answered this just now and that you believe it was worth it uh but is this something that you would seek out again i mean is this the kind of opportunity that you might oh, go after absolutely it was by far the most fun thing i've done this summer uh, if anybody in band knows of a six-figure collection that they want to, that they know of, or that they they have a lead on, let me know. I'd always be interested. Uh, this stuff is super fun, and I think it is kind of the most uh, one of the most fun. It's the, it's the chase, the thrill. Is I, I think this is something I, I do want to do again. And I also want to comment that like I'm really shit at this. Like a lot <laughs> of the comments that I've made tonight, you should probably think are mistakes. Uh, my advice is yeah, kind of rough, and I think that there's a lot of people in band who've done this a lot longer than me and who know a lot more. You know, I know Missouri and TOA Michael and yeah. Dash, and a lot of these people have done these collections a lot more times than I have. Um, so just take all of my advice with a grain of salt and uh, realize I'm probably talking about 75% of this out of my ass. You know, maybe there's a new few nuggets in there. Who knows? Who knows? It's tough to tell. I mean, I, I think there's there's a ton of value in that. You you might not have done it 300 times yet, but there's still that first time of doing something. And there's a lot. I think you learn more off the first time of actually going into doing something. I also personally heavily relate to when you mentioned that you had several sleepless nights. Uh, when you got to go all in a lot earlier on, uh, I think that can be. And I won't say that you went all in, but when you got to make very large moves that you might not be as confident in as you want to, it, it takes a little a little force of will, if you'll pardon the pun, to uh, yeah. to to get you there. Uh, I know I'm going straight to hell for that. But uh, yeah, is there any small. is there anything else that you want to throw out there? Um, not really. I mean, it's been it's been super fun chatting with you. I think uh, a lot of the the data and underlying stuff is is really interesting. I think uh, the biggest thing that I have to say is there's lot of opportunities in the market right now uh, i think that a lot of people are kind of kind of bearish and i'm not super bearish within the market current market conditions i think it's super interesting and uh, i think everybody should be out there looking for new opportunities you know so uh go go get them <laughs> <laughs> go get them all righty guys 
this has been uh, TP Blaster and Wolf of Ten Street. Uh, do, if people want to find you, where can they find you if they have that six-figure collection? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Greater Moss Dog. I'm available at my email at greatermossdoggames at gmail.com. Uh, my handle on t- on uh, Discord is TP Blaster. I uh, I'm 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 out there. I'm Malcolm Moss on Facebook. So uh, I'm always I'm always I'm always looking for the next one. So hit me up. Always around. Alrighty, and then if you guys want to find anything I do, you can find me over at Wolf of Tin Street on Twitter, or obviously here in the band Discord over at the band community on Patreon. Hope you have a good evening.